Guidelines are being changed continuously as new evidence is acquired and our environment evolves. Most recently released are the NHLBI guidelines for pediatric care providers. In our discussion today, we'll address the context to which the guidelines were developed and some of the key social and ethical issues faced by the panel. And we'll review the results and the recommendations for the future with regard to lipid evaluation in pediatric patients. You're listening to ReachMD, and this is Lipid Lumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association. I'm Dr. Alan Brown, your host, and with me today is Dr. Samuel Gidding, Head of Pediatric Cardiology and Interim Director of the Heart Failure and Transplant Program at Nemours Cardiac Center, AI DuPont Hospital for Children in Wilmington, Delaware. Sam, thank you very much for joining us today. Great to be here, Alan. So there's been a lot of discussion both in the news and in the medical literature about some of the new cholesterol guidelines uh, for children. And I'm going to start by asking you what the guidelines are and what's new with these guidelines. How do they differ compared to previous guidelines? Well, I think the most important thing that's new about these guidelines is that they're evidence-based. Prior NHLBI prevention guidelines have all been uh, written by consensus panels, but this process uh, followed the Institute of Medicine evidence-based guidelines so that the evolutionary process in writing them was quite different. Um, basically, the second thing that's very different about them is they're integrated across all the risk factors. So rather than silo lipids and blood pressure and tobacco into separate guidelines, this particular guideline looks at the whole child and looks at global cardiovascular risk assessment. And then, uh, particularly important for our audience, is that the lipid guidelines uh, initially published in 1992 had not undergone serious revision uh, in uh, 15 years at the time the panel had started. Uh, other uh, revisions uh, had been published, but they basically followed the overall general concept of the 1992 guideline. So this particular, uh, one of the key goals of this panel was to revisit the lipid hypothesis as it relates to children and thoroughly explore a lot of the research that had been done since 1992 and develop a new approach if it was needed. So I'll be very curious to hear your thoughts on this because, you know, one school of thought has always been in the adult guidelines to look at a 10-year risk stratification. And once you determine the patient's 10-year risk, if it was relatively low, you were less aggressive. But we're really talking about lifetime risk when we're talking about children. And I wonder what your thoughts are. Well, I think, as you know, in my iconoclastic view, I've always looked at a lot of the adult guidelines as looking at the problem from the wrong end of the telescope. Uh, you kind of start with an event and work backward and try and undo an atherosclerotic process, which has actually probably been evolving for 30 to 50 or 60 years. So that uh, the idea behind the pediatric process is that you're looking forward as risk evolves and you want to think about not just identifying people with high risk, but primordial prevention, which is the prevention of risk development in the first place. So if you can maintain that low risk state over a lifetime, you may never have to see a cardiologist. Um, but what's also key in a pediatric perspective is that there are a number of children who have fairly uh, accelerated atherosclerosis. It's a very small number, but these kids exist, and they include kids with severe genetic dyslipidemias like familial hypercholesterolemia, uh, 
diabetic kids, and the prevalence of diabetes is increasing dramatically now with the obesity epidemic, and then some rare diseases like chronic kidney disease um, and things like that. So there is a very small subgroup of kids who does have maybe not a 10-year risk, but probably a 20 or 25-year risk of an event who can be identified at a relatively early age, and their vascular age is probably the same as a 30 or 40-year-old. So this is a really tough issue for those of us who are parents and those of us who are physicians. You know, what kind of things should we be looking for in our pediatric patients, especially in light of the fact that so many more of them have obesity and metabolic syndrome? And if so, and once we identify these patients as at increased risk, and I'm excluding right now a discussion we'll come back to people with familial hypercholesterolemia, but when you identify the obese child with borderline blood pressure and low HDL and borderline glucose, what kind of things uh, can we do to intervene and what should we tell the parents and the patients? Well, I think the most important thing is that these people understand that at this age, atherosclerosis is at a very early stage and can essentially be reversed. So that if you intervene behaviorally at a young age, you don't need to progress to higher levels of blood pressure or worsening dyslipidemia, and you can ameliorate your future diabetes risk. And the first strategy is basically behavioral diet and exercise intervention, and a lot of times in kids, just achieving weight maintenance is sufficient. For the vast majority of my patients, if I can just get them to keep their weight the same, their blood pressure will stay the same, their dyslipidemia won't worsen, or it might actually improve a little bit. And if you can get them even to do a moderate amount of exercise, the, type, the amount of exercise recommended in, for adults in the diabetes protection program, which is uh, four days a week, about 50 minutes a day, you can actually really prevent or halt the progression of risk and may even create reverse it so that the kids don't need medication at this young age. So the, the primary goal is to get at these kids at an age where you can influence behavior and try and keep their weight the same or slightly better. The average American gains anywhere between 50 and 100 pounds from the time they finish school to the time they're age 50, 45, or 50. So if the kids are already heavy, uh, they're already beginning to show some of the risk that might have been expressed at an older age with the weight gain. You've really got to put the brakes on the weight gain at that time, and that's really a behavioral strategy. That being said... There is a subgroup of these kids that we really don't know what to do with, where they have a blood pressure that's a millimeter of mercury below the treatment threshold, an LDL cholesterol that's in the 150s but not 160 or 190, a low HDL cholesterol, a high triglycerides. And for those kids, we really don't have any evidence as to whether or not behavioral treatment alone is useful or whether, or not, or whether you have to add a treatment for those people. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm Dr. Alan Brown, and I'm speaking with Dr. Samuel Gidding on the controversy surrounding the NHLBI pediatric guidelines. So we haven't talked about much controversial at this point, Sam, but, but can you tell us a little bit about what the guidelines do say? In other words, what children should be screened and at what age uh, for dyslipidemia? So in the past, uh, there are selective screening recommended based on family history and or of either high cholesterol or early heart attack. And this would 
back when the guideline was written in the 90s, that would catch about 40 to 50 percent of the population. As the guideline has evolved and the obesity epidemic has evolved, lipid was recommended lipids be measured in kids with hypertension or obesity. This brings the total up to about 60 to 65 percent of kids who would meet criteria for this selective uh, screening strategy. There have been a number of population-based studies which show that even if you screen 50 to 60 or 65 percent of the kids, you still end up missing about a quarter of the kids with familial hypercholesterolemia or extremes of the cholesterol distribution. So that over the 20 years since the publication of the initial guideline, a risk-based or cascade-based type screening program based on family history has essentially failed to identify an important subgroup of kids with genetic dyslipidemia <clears throat> that are, it's been shown, are extremely high risk. Also, since the initial guideline was published, statins have emerged as an effective treatment. Back in 92, you know, you had um, drugs like niacin or uh, cholestyramine, but nobody really took them for more than a year. But now that you have the statins and you have medium-term length trials in kids that show they're highly effective in reducing LDL cholesterol and improving subclinical measures of atherosclerosis, and you know that event rates have been dramatically impacted in FH if you can treat people with statins, it became reasonable to recognize all the kids with statins. So a universal screening for cholesterol was recommended at about age 9 to 11 years. So to summarize that, the new, what's new in the guideline is universal screening for lipids at age 9 to 11 to do two things. One is make sure that all the kids with FH are recognized, and two, to have lipids in front of, of a physician so that risk, uh, long-term risk can be evaluated uh, in addition to blood pressure, smoking use, and other factors that might influence cardiovascular disease later in life. So what are the cut points for treatment in children? Well, basically, the, they haven't changed. It's essentially, an LDL over 190 um, in, in a kid uh, without other risk factors, and over 160 with a failure of diet management or one other risk factor. And uh, so these numbers remain much higher than adult uh, treatment guidelines. Now it gets brought down to an LDL of 130 if you have an extreme situation like coexistence of diabetes or two other major risk factors, like a kid who's LDL over 130 smokes and has significant hypertension. So if you get down to kids who would clearly be recognized as having multiple significant risk factors, that's when you would treat an LDL level at about 130 or higher. But the vast majority of kids who would get treatment are above 160 to 190, which is the 97th to 99th percentile of the population. Which are going to be mainly the familial hypercholesterolemic kids. Correct. It basically treats familial hypercholesterolemia in kids with extreme risk, like diabetes and other risk factors, um, end-stage renal disease and other risk factors, that kind of person. So is there a difference in the age group? You might start statin therapy, and let's just look at the subgroup of kids with familial hypercholesterolemia. Uh, we've got some data that over age 9, the boys seem to be uh, pretty safe. Yeah, so basically the recommendation is to treat at age 10. Now, in the past I used to hold off a little bit in girls because of the delayed um, 
onset of atherosclerosis, but girls will also have to interrupt treatment at some point when they get into pregnancy. And what's, I think what's been shown is basically that it actually doesn't matter what age you treat, the benefit is the same. Uh, so if you treat anybody for 10 years, they get the benefit of 10 years of being on a statin. So I think right now that gender difference um, uh, doesn't, uh, in terms of starting treatment, doesn't exist. Another interesting thought experiment uh, with regard to the youth prevention and some of the themes we've been talking about is if you could only take statins for 20 years, when would you take them? My advice would be to take them between ages 20 and 40 when atherosclerosis really kicks off uh, because you may get the biggest bang because your vessels will stay healthier and younger uh, if you treat at the time the atherosclerosis kicks off rather than later when it's fully developed and your arteries have actually become sclerotic. So are you moving primarily to statin therapy in the kids then as far as uh, treatment and moving away from... I know uh, when we were growing up, you and I, uh, bile acid resins were sort of thought to be the safest uh, because they didn't get systemically absorbed. And uh, now now we've got at least data with young men that statins are quite safe at a young age. And is there data yeah, for... We use statins primarily because, and particularly because the other agents aren't tolerated. Also, I think if you look at the risk data closely or the side effect data, it appears that a lot of the side effects really emerge in people who are over the age of 55. So there's still a lot of research on the long-term effects um, that has to be done, but it appears that they actually they emerge more in the older age group than in the younger age group. Uh, this brings up another really important point with regard to the evidence-based nature of the guideline. So that as part of the evidence review process, it was the weight of the evidence showing the benefit of treatment that outweighed the concerns about uh, long-term side effects and costs, which led to the recommendation. But also, as you pointed out, the modern guideline process is iterative. That is, the guidelines should be revisited every three to five years to reevaluate new evidence and decide if they need to be changed. Uh, the panel's view in 2008 or 2009, when, these guide, when the actual recommendations were developed, was that the evidence for universal screening and for treatment of people at the extremes of risk, uh, and these are very high LDL levels, um, was such that the weight was much more on the side of screening and treatment as opposed to kind of sticking your head in the sand. So let me ask you about then that. Why, why should there be any argument about universal cholesterol screening in children then? Well, the arguments relate to long-term safety and cost, mostly. Um, the safety issue is never going to be answered. Um, basically, you're not going to do a trial for 40 years. I mean, if you go back 40 years to 1972 and think about what we were doing with lipids, you can realize how the environment changes over that period of time. There we know that there's data emerging from the Netherlands which is going to show uh, the extensive benefit of statins in familial hypercholesterolemia. Uh, the, the early results that I've seen are dramatic in terms of preventing early event rates. And I think when this data is published, I think it's going to eliminate a lot of the concerns about um, early use of statins with genetic dyslipidemia or severe risk. Cost is very hard to analyze. What's very clear, there actually have been a number of cost analyses done around the world related to familial hypercholesterolemia. 
What's clear about cough is if you identify somebody with FH and you treat them with a statin, it's one of the most highly cost-effective interventions disease, uh, for disease prevention that exists. What adds cost to um, an FH algorithm is how you find those people with FH. And that seems to be highly idiosyncratic based on the country and the country's healthcare system and the healthcare dollars available to that country. Universal screening is a fairly expensive strategy, but it was recommended in the U.S. because of the lack of socialized medicine, the lack of genetic testing, and the inability to really initiate a cascade screening approach in the U.S. health system. Um, however, I think once we identify most of the people with FH in the country, it may become much more reasonable to go back to a cascade genetic-based strategy. However, for now, for right now, in the current era, universal screening seemed the best, most feasible option. Well, unfortunately, Sam, we're running out of time, but uh, I, I would like to give my personal thanks to our guest, Sam Gidding, for his insights on the pediatric guidelines and universal lipid screening in children as well as your additional thoughts on the safety and efficacy of early therapy. I'm Dr. Alan Brown, and you've been listening to Lipid Illumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association on ReachMD. Thank you very much, Sam, for your time. My pleasure, Alan. Please be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, which features podcasts of this and other series. And thank you all for listening.